0: Hello, everybody. Uh, I just want to first apologize for the delay in between episodes. I know it's been a little while, but there is a good reason for the delay. We at the Veterans Project have been working extra hard on some very special projects, which we will tell you about at a later day. My road schedule has been amping up a bit here in the coming months, so we'll do our best to maintain some semblance of a regular schedule uh, throughout some very times throughout some very busy times on the project no promises though it's going to be tough um, we're working on you know taking you know getting some shortcuts up and running so we can make sure that we have uh, a better organization when it comes to producing these podcasts but remember we're in the early days of this have some patience with us please now our current project out right now is the veteran. Of the is a veteran of the British Army, Nathan Ryder. And I'd like to say a special thanks to the South Yorkshire Fire Department for having me in the station on such short notice. Such an incredible time with those guys. And it was kind of cool because it was my first time following a firefighter and it was in the United Kingdom up there in Manchester. So, for the Sheffield area specifically. Um, I had an absolutely amazing time, and I met some really incredible human beings who've dedicated themselves to a life of service. It does not have to be the United States of America to meet some incredible humans. Our allies have some incredible uh, servicemen as well, and I was very thankful to meet some of those guys who had, you know, Royal Marines, you know, former British Army guys serving in that station. It was an absolutely incredible time. And honestly, I think they got me into that fire station uh, more quickly than most U.S. stations would have gotten me in. So that was pretty cool. And they have a lot of red tape over there, so I appreciate it. Up next on the podcast, we sat down in Austin, Texas with San Antonio native Jeff Gonzalez. In fact, he grew up a few uh, a few minutes away from me, so it was pretty cool to talk to him about that growing up in the Texas Hill Country. Jeff enjoyed a decorated career as a U.S. Navy SEAL where he served around the world as both an operator and instructor. We talked about his time on the teams, his experiences in South America combating the cartels, and his present position as a world-renowned weapons and tactics instructor for Trident Concepts, which he founded. Jeff has a wonderful sense of humor, and I think you'll understand why I almost immediately liked him uh, upon first meeting him. Uh, And a big thanks to... Our guy, Tim Kennedy, on the introduction. I really appreciated that out of the range at Austin. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Jeff is an awesome guy. Uh, I really enjoyed being around him. I'd spoke to him once or twice before I sat down with him on the podcast. And as usual, you know, brothers in arms, we get along almost immediately. Uh, But Jeff's sense of humor really drew me in uh, pretty quickly. and We had a great time. So without further ado, here he is the one and only Jeff Gonzalez. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project podcast where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim K. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim K. and I'm your host as usual. Right here we've got Jeff Gonzalez, a uh, former Navy SEAL. Um, you're not like the Marines. We can say former, right? Is that uh, allowed or do you still always say Navy SEAL?
1: I Yeah, I guess I just have... Uh, I don't get into the minutia of that, I guess. <laughs> So I, I figure if if people want to get wrapped around the axle on that, fine. Yeah. That's great. <laughs>
0: That's awesome. I just love
1: to tease my Marines. Again. Oh, is that right? So yeah, oh, I got you. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. oh, no yeah, yeah. a former Marine. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's, again, I, I just can't get caught up in that minutia. Right. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. We got J- Jeff
0: here uh, live at the range at Austin, where he is the director of training, right? That's correct. And you have been in this position for how long, Jeff? In February, we'll, we'll,
1: we will have been open for three years. Oh, awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, I, fir- I first met Jeff, uh, it was probably about a month ago, I'd say right Has it been a yeah movie? yeah yeah we uh we were out here with uh that guy tim kennedy yeah you might know. <laughs> we, that's why i sent you a message i said hey i'm gonna be in a scion not a helicopter <laughs> I, 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 I got that afterwards i yeah. was like oh, what? oh okay i <laughs> got oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah now i got it that's not my i'm not that cool I'm yeah not, i'm the other tk <laughs> yeah yeah the other tk <laughs> oh no same birthday same initials not the You're same kidding. person. are kidding same no. birthday yeah. Yeah, wow it's funny <laughs> oh yeah good to know <laughs> (laughs) So, uh, Jeff, can you? You know, we always in the Veterans Project. The way we do it is we we talk a lot about reintegration, but uh, a lot of it's based on where you're from. And you're you're South Texas boy like me, yeah. And from San Antonio, actually, Uh, yeah,
1: the northern part, yeah, up up in the hill country there. I grew up in um, uh, just outside of. I mean, now it's considered San Antonio proper, but back then we were out in the hill country. Like it was like way out there. Like going downtown was like this adventure you know now it's just like yeah no no big deal so i grew up down there uh and i i thank my lucky stars because it was just you don't really you don't really get it at the time yeah you don't really appreciate it so i was um very lucky i consider myself were you from the Leon Valley area, right? Yeah, and specifically. Yeah, yeah, just outside there. Um, like, I split time between that and Helotus. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: Reason this is important to me is because, like, you know, I I live in the Northwest Crossing area. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. For so I'm sure. like right down the road from yeah. you, man. It's well, crazy. I mean,
1: you know, I lived on the right there by Marshall, so Marshall was my alma mater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, man. it's that's funny. There's some good guys coming out of there. I Three feel slums. like, yeah. Um, the, uh, my fellow teammates of mine, the Satello brothers, they were out of that area really? too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. They're down there in Bernie right now. Oh, well, okay. only one of them. The other one is still on active duty. Bernie's the place where everybody's going now. I love it out there. I mean, it was, uh, beautiful. it was, again, it was just like, um, growing up in that area. People, you know, were, it was just, just a different way of life.
0: Yeah. You talk a little bit about that. What was your, what was it like growing up for you in South Texas? Um, What do you remember about your childhood? I remember
1: a lot. Like I had a group of friends whom I'm still close with to this day that we started our friendship probably when um, T-ball, you know, and all through elementary school, middle school, high school. uh, One of them uh, actually broke off before like he literally i think he missed his graduation because he had enlisted in the navy and he had orders to leave before the graduation uh, ceremony and i or no i think he was there but like the next day he was gone because i went over to his house because we lived in each other's houses all that time yeah. and i went over to his house and his mom was like yeah he's not here i'm like where where is he oh he's in the navy i'm like what <laughs> <laughs> what when <did> that exactly <laughs> so i had um the what I consider to be just a normal, you know, upbringing that we played outdoors. I mean, I had my mom would tell me, you know, my my rules, the house rules were uh, come home at dusk or when the street lights come on. Mm, yeah. And we um, we stayed at Back each other's the good old days. Yeah, I mean, you could do that. Right. We stayed at each other's houses uh, like all the time. Like my best friend lived on the opposite side of my my street. I lived in a Kola sac so he lived on the opposite side. And I used to climb the fence and just walk across the fence to get to his house because it was like right there mm-hmm. other than walking all the way down my street and all the way back up to the other street. It was just a pain. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was a mischief, uh, you know, I was a roofian, if you will, at that point because we just did so much stuff. I mean, we were into dirt bikes. We were into BMX. We were into skateboarding. Um, I played in high school. I swam and played water polo. Um, my experience there was probably... The bedrock for my naval career. Like, mm, that yeah. really was what I think um, got me acclimated to it. Ugh. That strong uh, sense of, uh, or that strong experience in the water was huge. You know that's interesting because
0: I, uh, I I love being in the pool. I love being in the water, the river. You know, Guadalupe, mm. going out camping mm. with my dad. Like I, so I feel like pretty natural around it. But that was like that would have been one of the massive reasons for me not. Playing the <laughs> seals. Like so I
1: wasn't that good of a swimmer. Like I, I loved I loved playing water polo. Like there's, yeah. I'm I'm so grateful that I got the chance to play water polo. Yeah. Um, it really helped refine my sense of. Um, confidence and control in the water um and like i you know i wasn't a very big kid uh you know when i was in high school i might have weighed like 130 135 i think when i when i left for the navy um my in physical i was like 155 Mm. you know so i didn't i didn't gain i wasn't that big of a kid yeah um i graduated buds at 185
0: wow yeah put on some weight
1: yeah i did yeah um it was funny, it's so funny about that because I think it was my uh junior to senior or sophomore to junior summer. If you're if you're if you are at a good level of swimming and, and in Texas, swimming is a big sport, it's very popular, and we have we produce some amazing swimmers. So you swim year round, mm-hmm. you know, so you have your school swim season and then you have your summer swim season basically. And so I would swim in the summertime, and I remember one some the sophomore year, I think it was my sophomore year, I had like this massive growth spurt. Yeah, because I mean, it, it, the thing about swimming is that you're 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 in the pool doing a lot of swimming, obviously, but we have what we call dry land exercises, dry land work, and that's where you're in the weight room, uh, you're in you're doing all the stretching, all the mobility stuff. So I got exposed to this at a very early age. Mm. I mean, it was a very complex orchestra for our our swimming program that we had there. And so I got called in like halfway through the start of my junior year to, and our swim program had one head coach. So all of our high schools came and swam at the same pool. Okay, And we had one head coach. Then there was the school coaches and gotcha. the assistant coaches. So the head coach for the actual entire program there, uh, I got called in his office with Uh, opposing two opposing coaches from other high schools Mm. and they had accused me of doing steroids during the summertime because (laughs) i had i i I started to grow that's great you know like i and when you're doing that much work at that age Uh you are just chiseled i mean like ripped and i mean there was not a morsel of food that was in arm's reach that i could not put in my mouth Like, I had to eat all the time, (laughs) all the time. My mom, you hear about like Phelps, like taking in like 10,000 calories a day or something. My mom on Sunday night would make breakfast tacos and she'd wrap them up and she would make like um, this giant bin of them. And I would go through four or five tacos in like. One sitting. Like I would literally sit and I had a process. Open one, like they were individually wrapped. Open one, eat it, put the other one on top. Open that one, eat it, put the other one on top. You know, and I just went through it and I would count the number of tinfoil sheets that I had left. I was like, okay, four, okay, five, because I had no idea how many I was eating. I just kept eating. It was like an assembly line of breakfast tacos into my mouth. That's awesome. It was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Which actually transferred over into the Navy, which is one of the reasons why I gained so much weight. I feel like everybody in
0: San Antonio would have a story like that. Oh, I know. (laughs) But what's so
1: funny was uh, Taco Cabana opened up in my high school years. Really? Yeah. So it opened up, the first one opened up on Bandera and six, uh, I can't remember what that other road was, but it was the very first one they opened up Mm. and it was, it was our second home. Yeah, because on it was on our it was way. Like Bandera and Gilbo, maybe was that one. I think so. Yeah, there's an HEB and a Bill Miller near. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The yeah. Bill Millers right on the yes. other side. Yes, I, I remember. Actually, that. I worked at that Bill Millers. Really, that was the first <laughs> job I ever had. Was that as a bus boy at I had that? A Bill ton Miller. of friends who worked. There. Yeah. 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 Wow. So then, and then, um, like the 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 Natatorium where our pool was was just down the the interstate, or yeah, the interstate, and on our way to school, we had to drive by that Taco Cabana. So we would just—I mean, pff, the drive-through just never see after swim hours. Yeah, it was just this assembly line of swimmers <laughs> going through the drive-through <laughs> to get breakfast. Wow, that was hilarious. What a uh, so. What year were
0: you headed to the Navy? In
1: so I graduated high school in '87. Okay, but um, my head coach there, who I stayed in contact with for a little bit, actually a funny story on that one. Um, he pulled me aside one. Day, I think it was my beginning of my senior year, maybe mid, midway through. I can't remember exactly. And he's, he asked me, well, my head coach goes, Hey, um, coach wants to see you. And I was like, Oh crap. Cause the last time that like that happened when I got called into his office, it wasn't a good experience. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you always try it. It's like going to the principal's office. You know, you yeah. don't want to do that. No, he's always walking the pool deck, but to go into his office is another thing. Yeah. So I remember I went into his office and he's like, Have you ever heard of the Pentathlon? I'm like, no, I, I know what a triathlon is, but I don't know what a pentathlon is. Right. So he felt that I had an aptitude to do well in a sport called the pentathlon, modern pentathlon, mm. which is five events, obviously. The run and the swim are the two that most people know. And then the other three are fencing, shooting, and horseback riding. Okay. And I said, I have no experience. Other than running and swimming. Like my, my family didn't grow up with guns. So I had uh, family friends that I would go with my family to go and shoot guns. Mm. So I had no formal instruction other than the Boy Scouts and family friends. No formal instruction to Navy SEAL. They, yes. <laughs> to, to To yeah, pretty much, director. <laughs> pretty much. So it, it was one of those things where um, I was a little timid about it at right. first. And he's like, well, let's go and meet the coaching staff. And then you can make a decision. And the the nice thing about it was the modern pentathlon is headquartered there in Fort Sam Houston. Yeah. So it's right down the road. Oh yeah. Well, not technically right down the road, but it's in San Antonio. So we drove out there one day, and I met the coaches. And the coaches are all elite level coaches at this at, in this organization. It's because that's the headquarters, right? So, um, and it's ironic because <clears throat> there happened to be two active duty SEALs that were TDY to the headquarters as they were training for a military version of the of the um, pentathlon called the SISM games mm. and uh, I met them he, like the coach walked me by them and introduced me to these guys and I I really didn't understand who I was really talking to at the time yeah you know I didn't have a real good sense of that but I thought it was cool I'm like oh that's cool yeah <clears throat> so um I spent my summer after graduation training for the pentathlon the nationals and I went to nationals junior nationals uh, and I competed there, so then my entire summer that was it. And my enlistment date was uh, September like seventeenth. Wow! So when I finished nationals, I had like a week off, and then I left for the Navy right after that. Wow!
0: So how how long were you in for?
1: How long was I in the Navy? Yes, a little bit over twelve years. Wow! Twelve years. Yeah. Okay.
0: So when you when you joined the when you joined the seals, what was what was the buds process like for you? How was that?
1: Um. Well. Uh, I mean, it was such a uh, just an impacting period of my life. yeah, um, I was uh, in a class that we had twenty four people graduate and only sixteen originals. Wow, So you know, we went from a fairly large class, a hundred plus students all the way down to twenty four and then sixteen originals means that those were the original students that classed up with that class. Because what'll happen is, as you get rolled back for physical or or uh, um, you know the educational side of the house, uh, you class back up with the class below you. Right. And so that's where we got those other those other students that graduated. And, um, I mean, gosh, there are so many, so many experiences that just flash back. Like the one that flashes back to me right now was when I was in pre training. And when I was in pre training, um, you basically are waiting to class up. So I got there like I think thirty days early before my class date, and so uh, basically they put you to work. Yeah, and um, I got to go out to San Clemente Island, which we call the island. I got to go out to the island and basically do some uh, repair and clean up and painting, a lot of painting out there on our compound in San Clemente. So I it was nice because it got me off the island. It got me off Coronado, which is another island. Yeah, and. So you're kind of away. So you're a little bit left up to your own devices, Mm -hmm. right? And when there's not a class out there, so we had to go out there when there's not a class because when there's a class, it's like chaos. Yeah. So there's no class out there. So that's why we're able to do all the maintenance work that we were there for. And I think there's maybe six of us out there, six pre-trainees. And actually of the six, I was the only one that actually graduated. Wow. Everybody else did not make it through. Mm. But um, so we're out there. And the funny thing is that the instructors will periodically, for R and R, come out to the island to get away, and they'll go out and they'll just do some spear fishing, um, or lobster hunting, or any variety of those types of aquatic endeavors. And a lot of times, you get tasked to go out with them. Yeah. Like, go get your rubber. You're coming out with me. Okay. And I got uh, one chance to do that, and basically, what it means is that you are the shark bait. Because you carry the catch bag. Okay. So they, they catch it, you put it in the catch bag, you drag the catch bag. Oh, <laughs> so, man. Shark bait. Sounds like a great time. <laughs> oh, it was. It was awesome. Um, but the, the, what, what I remember the most was um, my, ex- my, my exposure to a mini blasting machine. Mm-hmm. So we have these things called a mini blasting machine. And what it is is it's, a, it's like a, a, a power source that we use to detonate an electrical charge. demolition charge and it it has a um basically has a trip uh, like a a a trip that once you once you generate enough electricity it trips it and sends the entire charge through which is what detonates so it takes you some time to actually physically create enough of that electricity stored in the cells that it will then trip it and send it down through the wires Mm. oops excuse me so um we're in the barn, the boat barn, and one of the instructors comes over and comes into the barn. He's like, hey, come over here. I'm like, "Who ya!" You know, uh, his, name, his name, I don't want to say his name because I don't want like him to in trouble. But um, <laughs> he's like, hold on to these two wires. And I was like, okay. He's like, don't let go. So oh. when an instructor gives you an order, uh-huh. it's like the word of God. Right. And I wasn't even in training at that point. I was in pre-training. So it's like you do not want to do anything that's going to get you in trouble or that the instructors will remember you. Right. Because you always want to try to be the gray man going through Yeah, yeah. He didn't want to get to training already known. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So he goes, hold these wires. Mm -hmm. And all the other guys around me were like, they they moved back. It they up, uh, yeah. off. So I held onto these wires and I didn't know what a mini blasting machine was because I was not mm. even in I wasn't even a Bud student. I mean I technically was a Bud student, but I hadn't classed up. So I hold on to these things and I know that something bad is about to happen. I just don't know what. Yeah. You know, there's that like you just know. Yeah, <laughs> it's <yeah>. like he <laughs> would not be doing this unless there was something entertaining about <laughs> this. You know? yeah. So it's <laughs> gonna go well for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it never does. So I remember I'm holding on to these things, and he starts cranking on this mini blasting machine. And as he does, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I I kind of now figure out what's happening, right? Right? But I'm holding on to the wires, and he's got like one pump, two pumps, three pumps, oh, and, and nothing. Yeah, I'm like, okay, I can do this. And then like four pumps, and then on the, the fifth pump. It tripped the breaker and sent that entire charge. And I'm like, Aah! and I was being electrocuted without really knowing it. That was my first run-in with electricity in the Navy. Uh-huh. So I'm like, I remember my muscles contracted so hard, I could not let go of those wires. <laughs> and he, and he's like, he, and now what's so funny is the instructor's going, okay, let go, let go, let go. You know, he's yelling at me, let yeah. go. And I'm like, I can't, <laughs> ah, you know, and my muscles had contracted so hard that for like the next week, I couldn't move my arms. They were so sore. Oh, I mean, man. this was like as far as I could move this arm, it was yeah. just like so tight from that muscle, that forced muscle <laughs> contraction. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the story that popped into my that's head when you awesome. asked me about that. <laughs> about buds, yeah. <laughs> that's just one of many. Let yeah, me just tell sure. you, one of many. <laughs> For probably pull oh, up a whole podcast with those. Oh, or, my God. I remember yeah. that so much. God, that was a blast. I do. <laughs> I, I, no Literally. Pun, no yeah. pun intended on that one. Yeah. I mean, the good news was that I had marked myself in a positive light Yeah. as one of two things. One, I was really stupid <laughs> because i wouldn't let go of the wires yeah. that's what they were thinking they're like you're a dumbass you yeah. should have let go of those wires if you if you burned yourself it's your fault i'm like ah uh, yes ya, instructor you know like uh-huh. okay but uh it, it was funny because they kind of remembered that yeah through it all and but it was remembered as a good thing versus a bad
0: thing yeah what was the what was the pride like when you finally became a seal and you earned mm. your trident? I mean, and and correct me if I'm wrong. Like, do you earn your trident at the
1: end of No? That, that's something you get when you get to the teams, right? Back then, yes. Today, okay. it's a little different, right? I, I it can be summed up in a single photograph. Mm, and right. um, uh, my girlfriend, God bless her, she posted up on Veterans Day like a little collage of pictures. And there's a picture of me walking across the compound, the grinder, in um. At the at the schoolhouse after I had just received my certificate from Buds, yeah. and the look on my face right then and there says it all. Yeah, it says it all. You know, yeah. I can't even put it into words. Man, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that yeah. was pretty cool. So when you got to your teams, who did you who were you with? So I went straight to SEAL Team Four. Okay. And there's a funny story about that uh-huh. because honestly, I I went to a school in Virginia, yeah. and I went to a school in the winter, Oof. and so I hated it. I hate. I went it. to AIT in Virginia. Yeah, and, so yeah. I was not a happy camper in the winter. Yep. Yeah, and so when I got out to California, I was in love with that SoCal life. I was right. like, I don't want to go back to Virginia. I so on my dream sheet at the end when you get to uh, second or third phase, um, you get to fill out a form called a dream sheet, and on the dream sheet you can put the actual SEAL teams that you would like to go to, not mm-hmm. that they, I mean. I don't know how much effort they put into actually <laughs> right, obligating that, but yeah. it, it you know it gives you something. So I put down SEAL Team One, SEAL Team Three, SEAL Team Five, and SDV Team Five or SDV Team One. Okay. So all West Coast teams, right? Right. And then at the uh, right before graduation week, you get your orders. Yeah. And um, the last week of of buds is t- typically all administrative stuff, logistics and whatnot. So right then, you get they and they make a big deal about it. They've all put you like in the formation and then they the uh command master chief well it wasn't command master chief it was master chief of the phase chuck mccullough great guy god yeah that that dude right there is uh he is a legend in the community so and he starts to read off like each of the orders and you know every, there's big hoo-yah for you know all right you know and he did it alphabetically so i'm like gotta wait for the middle so everybody's <laughs> getting surprisingly like everybody's almost getting the teams that they asked for yeah. and i'm thinking
2: yeah this is gonna be fucking awesome yeah
1: so when he got to me and he, he said, SEAL Team 4. And he stopped. And he was like, he looked at the orders. He looked at me. He's like, you're going to do good there. Uh-huh. And then that was it. That's all he said. But he didn't say that to anybody else. Yeah. Uh-huh. And there was another guy, another instructor, great guy as well, who after the ceremony there, not the ceremony, but after that little event, he comes up to me and he's like, you're... You're going to a good team, and you're going to a good team at a good time. And mm. I didn't understand what that meant. So back when we were at the island uh, during second phase, which is our land warfare, we had a visit from the uh, commanding officer and the command master chief from SEAL Team 4. Mm. And I kind of like I, – I listened mm. to their, um, their speeches only because it was – Obviously, the and commanding chief. officer and the yeah. command master chief, so you right. pay attention, right? Yeah. But they were from the east coast, and I'm like, Man, I want to go to the east coast. Yeah. I don't know if I could do it. And they start. Also, talking.
0: you're probably just thinking about trying to get through too. <laughs> uh,
1: well, you know, at that point, you know, yeah, there's that. Yeah. But you know, you're also thinking about like, but basically, they were recruiting for their gotcha. Team. They were okay. recruiting for their team. Makes sense. And so, because you know, when you fill out the dream sheet, they try to accommodate some of those requests. I mean, if people are volunteering to go to a team that's short manned that means they don't have to start volunteering you to go. Right, there. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so then um, I listened in and they were talking about the uh, narco-terrorism in Central and South America and I was like, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the East Coast though, man. I don't want to go to the East Coast and I kind of just let it go. Didn't really pay attention to it and then um, when Instructor Faye started talking to me about SEAL Team 4 and kind of like what was going on with those guys, I was like, Okay. Yeah. Sounds interesting. But the, what was so funny was I was the only student. Um, the class before me and three classes after me did not send any students to SEAL Team Four. Wow. I was the only one that went there for like, so I was a new guy. I was like a perpetual new guy for almost two years. Wow. Because <laughs> nobody came. You were cursed. I was, I was the junior man. Now there's a, there, there's a good, there's a good part to this. Okay. <clears throat> There's a ceremony where the oldest ranking member of the command and the youngest ranking member of the command get to reverse roles. It's a tradition and it's called splicing the main brace. And basically what that is from a nautical point of view is the main brace was the main mast that went all the way down through the bowels of the ship, all the way to the main, you know, it was down in the bowels where all the nasty was. And so the youngest sailor would be tasked to crawl through these crevices which is filled with nasty stuff and actually um, place this compound on the beam to help create uh, basically keep it from rotting. Okay. All right. And it was shit duty. I mean, yeah. like, like bad, bad, yeah. like you're literally crawling through shit, uh-huh. the bowels of the ship. And so the tradition was that the young, in, in, in as a, um, as a compensation so to speak you get to actually act you get to reverse role so the the co then shares his bottle with you mm. and you get to drink from the co's bottle so everybody p- pints you know mind your p's and q's is as a nautical term for mind your pints and quarts huh. so when wow. you when you misbehave on a ship that's what the quartermaster will tell you mind your p's and q's because when we would issue out rations if you did stupid stuff you wouldn't get your rum ration. Mm, so okay <laughs> so anyhow he would just, you know the ceo always had his own the captain always had his own so um i did get to d- partake in that yeah. so if i had any glory in being the new guy for that long it was that i got to do that that ceremony which was it's kind of cool you that know mean? It's, cool, it's very yeah. traditional so i i dug it yeah yeah and i found out um uh, that captain he passed away about three years ago oh wow unfortunately yeah, yeah. so
0: that's tough man yeah it is yeah. it's hard to see guys go
1: yeah and he was was he still in when he passed? Yeah. I think he'd retired by then. Oh, okay. I think he was oh, you know what? I don't know how long he had been retired, but I'm pretty sure he was retired. Yeah. Wow. So,
0: Jeff, what did you what was it like when you got to Team Four and and did you did you enjoy being on that team?
1: I I mean, I suppose count you my lucky say stars. No. <laughs> All the guys listening, you better. Say yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I count my lucky stars. It was the best thing that happened to me. In yeah. my naval really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I can't say that unequivocally, but I can say that the path that I was on was awesome. Yeah. That's um, awesome. So, SEAL Team Four at that time was heavily involved in Central and South America. So, I showed up to the command um, right before Operation Just Cause so when you asked me about how do you get your trident so basically once you graduate buds you at that time you would go to your team well you'd go to jump school then you'd go to your team and then you'd get uh, classed up with what's called stt it's now called stt stood for seal tactical training and now it's called sqt seal qualification training and that was run by the individual teams so now it's run by the training command out in california and uh, you would class up with that, which was again another six months, and that's where you actually learned the trade craft for being a seal. Like buds, really doesn't do it. It gives you a foundation, and it's designed as a giant filter system, mm. right? So you don't really learn your trade craft till you get to STT or SQT, and then from that moment you graduate from STT. Then you would go. You had thirty. You had a probation period, and then after the probation period you could take your – basically it was a board. You would sit in front of a board of all the senior members of the command, all the senior enlisted members, and they would ask you various questions. Hmm. And you had to pass these questions, and then you had to do various tasks, everything from configuring a satellite radio to um, breaking apart a rifle and putting it back together blindfolded to being able to start an IV to – being able to plot grid coordinates, so you you had all these other tasks you had to do, and if you if you passed that, if you made it successfully through the board, then the senior enlisted would give the CO their recommendation that you be awarded your Trident, mm. and then the CO would then um, issue the Trident at the next like major muster and whatnot. So once you get through that, so that's all total. That's about a year and a half, like eighteen months, right? You know, so it was a long that is long long yeah. trials. So, but again, my command was stocked with just some of the, at the time, the legends. Guys that were just ridiculously well respected, had a lot of experience for being, and you have to put it in context back that time period. We weren't in, we were doing, we were, the the catchphrase of the time was low intensity conflict. Mm. So we were involved in all these little skirmishes all throughout the world. But we were getting the lion's share of them because of the hot the how hot the region was. Back then we also had territorial regions that each command, each SEAL team was responsible for. Gotcha. So it's a little different now. But back then, RAO was the Central and South American. If you look on the emblem of the SEAL Team 4's logo, you'll see um the SEAL holding a dagger to basically Central America, which denotes RAO. Gotcha. Um so as soon as I got to STT, I did really good in STT. STT was like, man, this is my jam. I am in my zone. I am doing everything. Like, I, th- I think back to STT, and I feel like I was at my very, very best at that moment. Yeah. Those moments. I was like doing it for real. And I got called into the um, training chief's office, a guy named Brian Brackett, who had the thickest New England accent ever. <laughs> Love him to death. Yeah. And he was impervious to cold. Yeah. That's the other thing I remember. I, it's like he had like alcohol instead of blood in his veins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just didn't freeze, it didn't get cold. Uh, it was hilarious. Um, and he calls me in and he tells me that I'm getting pulled from S T T. And that's how he framed the question, or that's how he framed the conversation. You're getting pulled from S T T. And I freaked out. I was like, I was like, my heart rate just jumped. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like doubled. And he's like, there was an accident. Uh, you're getting, you're platooning up. Mm. And you're going to be going to your platoon. You need to go down and check in with your OIC right now. Wow. So we were still four months into the six months of STT. So I hadn't even, I mean, I just got over the hump, if you will. Right. And I had to go meet my new OIC guy named Marty Strong. And I went over there to the platoon hut and I introduced myself and I walked into what proverbially could be the lion's den. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, these guys in the platoon were just all veteran guys, been around for a while. We had some serious, serious heavy hitters. We were tasked with a real world mission right off the bat. Yeah, so my my time my my tenure at SIL Team Four started with me being thrown into real world combat right mm-hmm. off the bat. Wow. I mean, I still had Coronado sand in my when I was downrange throwing rounds. That's what I tell everybody. I'm like, that's how how fast it was. Now, that was an anomaly because it really didn't happen other than that. But it just so happened to be the perfect timing between Operation Mm -hmm. Just Cause. So we deployed down there about 40 days before it in preparation.
0: Wow. Mm -hmm. So,
1: yeah. In fact, I am going out to um, D.C. next month to celebrate the 30-year anniversary. Wow. I just talked about this uh just just recently yeah congrats 30 That's years awesome. in december yeah. yeah so it's gonna be i'm i'm excited it's gonna be a, a logistical nightmare because i have to come from the west coast all the way to the east coast <laughs> but i'm looking forward to it i did a couple of those trips last year that was rough <laughs> yeah, yeah they are they are i drove it it was mm. a nightmare <laughs> mm. no i've got a I've got a government contract that i got to execute and then mm. as soon as i'm done with that i've got to literally fly red eye all the way Oof. over and then be rough. there for the for the ceremonies on the next day so. rough but you're doing what you love right i am explain so
0: explain the complexities of that region and the and the dynamics of what was going on there because
1: for a lot of people oh yeah that don't understand
0: special well, operations missions they're like oh we weren't at war that was during the cold war era it, you know, it really right? was and, and
1: and i did a lot i mean my my rating at the time was an intelligence specialist so okay. i i knew the cold war in and out right um but this was a different setting we were now getting involved in uh the counter terrorist oh, i'm sorry the uh, counter drug war mm. and at that time the counter drug war in the 80s and 90s was huge um, i mean popping busy oh, down there jeez yeah. it was ridiculous <clears throat> and um you know i got a chance to work with some of my some of our counterparts down there that were on a daily basis engaged with the uh what they called the narco terrorists wow yeah so it was it was awesome. I yeah. mean, I could not have asked for a better time period to to be a young frogman because I had so many responsibilities. I was in the mix doing things that guys at the time only wish they got the chance to do. You know, everybody you always want to get called to the show and you you know, you're just waiting, you know, waiting on deck, waiting on deck, waiting on a lot of times it's a waiting game and then for me to just boom go right in was yeah. pretty awesome. Um so tensions between the um Basically our job at that point was to try to train up the host nations to combat the narco-terrorism that was so prevalent. Mm. And at that time period, it was I mean it's it, that it, that region suffered what you can what you can what you can see is happening in Mexico. Really? That entire time. But that but for decades. Wow. Yeah. It was bad.
0: What was it like down there when you got there? What do you remember specifically about it?
1: Um I mean it's a, uh, I mean, as far as traveling to third world countries, you know, there are some beautiful areas down there. I mean, good God. I mean, we traveled, you know, I tell people I water skied down the, uh, you know, the Amazon River. <laughs> I, I, you know, I actually water skied through piranha infested waters so uh, it was only a navy seal (laughs) we we finally we found that out after the fact of course that's great yeah (laughs) um so it's such a beautiful culture down there very interesting to see the um the, the, the culture uh, – and the, I found out the reason why I was chosen to go to SEAL Team 4. It was my last name. Oh, uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> So I grew up – Did my, you know Spanish? My mom and dad spoke right, Spanish, right. but they wanted us to speak English, okay. my sister and I. Yeah. So we worked at it, and I never really practiced it. There's now, an I, interesting
0: I, dynamic of that in Hispanic families. Yeah, it's either it, one it, way, yeah. like they're ashamed of you if you don't know it, or it's, they're like for me, try to not teach you For me, all.
1: it was they wanted me to be successful – because th- they wanted me to have English as my first language, yeah, and so it was now i did I did come to speak in Spanish and I traveled through that country um and I did a lot of I acted as a translator in many cases for our mm. for our missions and whatnot, so um it worked out okay, but man, it was a crazy time period to be down there, yeah like uh, did you see that movie with Tom Cruise? Oh it, it was when he played the drug smuggling pilot? I can't remember what that was called. But it was recent. It's only about two or three years old. I went to go see it with my... No, I didn't. Oh, it's a good movie, yeah. actually. I need to check it out. Yeah, it really was. So I went to go see it with my um, youngest son. And and I'm telling him in the movie, I'm like, I know exactly what they are talking about. I know exactly where this is at. Yeah. I know I know this terrain. Like, like it was... And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this was where I worked. I worked in this area and he did, like didn't get it I'm like when I was in the navy this is what my this was my AO these are the people that I was tasked to wow. to you know go after so uh that was actually kind of – I wasn't expecting that I mean it was kind of one of these things where oh, okay it'll be kind of cool it, it's got a you know it's got Tom Cruise in it so you kind of have this idea that it's going to be okay <laughs> yeah. um and he's going to be doing his own stunts for sure <laughs> oh my god that's one of the reasons why I go to watch him yeah. I'm like that's respect I respect yeah, the shit out I of him too. for that yeah Um, So anyhow, that was the time period, and it was portrayed in Hollywood very accurately.
0: Very accurately. You know what's interesting is I I did a trip down there with uh, Prison Fellowship International, Mm -hmm. and I was a photographer for their missions team to Columbia. So we were going in and out of the prisons. Oh, wow. And the guy who was leading us into the prisons was at the time like pablo Escobar's like right hand man Jeez. in the area so I mean he was straight chopping people's heads off oh for like, sure you know, and he spent I think he did like ten years in the Colombian prison and you know they just like let him out one day or something you know as they often it's do crazy but like he you know was either he was gonna get killed in prison or they would let him go you yeah. know prison justice weird down there
1: it is yeah. very it's a different culture for sure and and, and everything happens differently down there yeah, yeah. but yeah. they very, very slow yeah very <laughs>
0: But Anyways, he'd gotten saved and like he was, you know, he had like become a Christian. Oh, and, like, wow. Yeah, and like totally changed his life around. And like well, he, he was telling me that like he should have like he was like, honestly, like I should have been killed 100%. But I'm just glad that I'm still on earth like and I have a, chance, a second chance.
1: Man, I'll tell you, it, it was it was rough. Yeah. I mean, when when I was in Colombia, the number of judges that were being killed was almost like on a weekly basis. Really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was the tensions were very high, especially in Colombia, because that was kind of like the hot spot. That was yeah. where it all started to some extent. Like, coca production didn't start in Colombia, but the headquarters for the drug trade did, mm. and that's where everything that was that that's like, you know, that's like, Socom HQ, right? You know, that's where all the major power players were. Yeah, it wasn't the it's not, like the drugs didn't really go through that area. But that's where the decisions and the logistics and everything originated from. I can
0: imagine. I mean, even to this day, you know, I saw in Medellin. I was there. Oh, yeah. I just saw the
1: the impact of that carnage, you know, back in the day. So one of the fun things that I got to do, and this is one of those things where you just like, yeah, that's not possible, (laughs) was um, in Cartagena – one of the Cartagena is a beautiful, beautiful, oh my See, god, coastal town, right? Yes, yeah. oh my god, it was so gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but it's also rich in history. I mean, so much history there, like pirate history. Yeah, you know, awesome. a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, and so there's a lot of sunken galleons all over the place, oh, cool. and there's this one that's not far from, uh, like, the oh. the whole area you know it's it, i mean it's a boat ride out there and it takes like maybe a full day to go out there dive in and then come back in but basically what had happened was when the when the ship sank the casket that had all the cannonballs basically what happened was the cannonballs fused together and the wood eventually rotted away mm. so there's a, there's a bed of cannonballs wow and it's called la cama de or uh, i can't remember Oh, La Cama de Cañones, okay. I think is what it's called, and basically that's the bed of cannons. Wow! And so I had a picture of me laying down. With some, you know, we had underwater cameras because we, you know, we work so well in the water. Yeah. So I had a picture of me laying on this bed, kind of like you know, like I would be laying in a bed. And the guys <laughs> took pictures of it, and the water was wow. really murky, so it didn't come out that cool. Like yeah. you could see this weird objects, yeah, yeah. and some of them have been, uh, you know stolen basically and taken right. away so you can see where some are missing but you can still see that and it was pretty damn cool i'm That's not gonna awesome. lie; that was pretty cool uh, yeah
0: so you know you're talking a little bit about the dynamic of what was going on down there yeah and you know who who were the bad groups that you're really dealing with mostly i mean i imagine it's probably like <laughs> there were so many
1: you know just, i mean it, it's hard to put a number if you're if you're asking who is the most ruthless yeah it would definitely be the Colombian cartels. The Colombian cartels really kind of started that entire drug war. Yeah. And while some others came into prominence, it was they came into prominence on the scraps mm. of what the Colombians didn't want. Gotcha. You know, like there were some down in Peru that were pretty nasty. Um there were several throughout venezuela but venezuela and colombia were kind of at war against each other anyhow so yeah. that didn't help um you know others others had a little bit of the pie but they didn't have the 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 the, the massive amount of the pie that the colombians did yeah and they, they that's why they were so ruthless cuz they were willing to do anything to keep it yeah you know so
0: do you do you remember you know feeling nervous about being down there or you know I know as a, it's not talked about very often but do you I will remember? tell you yeah.
1: not really I mean when you're down there and you're working in the capacity and you're on like you're in on the job could bad things happen of course like we had we had several instances where service members were murdered and killed various you know various types of attacks that happened so you had to be on you had to have your a game up all the time but that just became my landscape right that's all I knew yeah Um, a funny story though (laughs) Uh, and it happened to be we were in Bogota yeah and my swim buddy and I and we always work in pairs so my swim buddy and I were eating at this little cafe that's maybe I don't know a couple blocks from our hotel we stayed at this really nice hotel and the um, we were on the and and they they tell you as part of your force protection measures not to eat on the patio because that's too easy for drive-by shootings right so imagine those were pretty bad in the area <laughs> yeah so of course we're eating on the patio yeah because that's also where all the girls are you know the girls walk by so you gotta you gotta have a good it's more important being able to see the just girls just saying there. I'm just saying you gotta have your priorities <laughs> in place right so back back then they, we called them long haired dictionaries Because uh-huh. your, your efforts were to try to start to learn the language like oh well, you, you know I need to learn this language what better way to learn the language than by talking to a beautiful girl right So anyhow, we're sitting on this cafe um, porch or patio area, and it had a low wall on the outside by the street, and we're just sitting there eating, and all of a sudden, gunfire erupts. And I mean like everywhere it's erupting. And it was all almost instantaneous. Like it wasn't like this, like one or two shots, crescendoing to, it was like boom, everything going down like an ambush. That's what it sounded like to us. And we immediately dove for cover. I mean, and then we're, and all we had on us were our pistols. So then we're like low crawling underneath tables and getting into the, into the actual physical part of the restaurant. And then we're kind of like low walking, getting down behind things to get into the kitchen. And the freaking owner is looking at us like we're, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) And, and we're like – we've got defensive positions. We're both supporting one another and we're thinking about our exits and we're already kind of like – you know, I've got the radio. We're already thinking about calling for a hot extract. You know, we're not sure what's going on, but we know things are bad. And he – in his broken English, he says World Cup. <laughs> and Colombia had just won the World Cup. So – the soccer cup, right? Yeah, yeah. So they were celebrating in the streets by cooking off – like when the last second ticked off – uh, Everybody started shooting their guns in the air. So <laughs> oh, it was man. hilarious because at that time, Noel and I were like, <sighs> so sorry. Noel and I were like, oh, wow, we look like jackasses. <laughs> 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 we look so bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh play it off play it off just play it off right yeah, yeah so we just go back out there we leave the we leave all the money on the table we just kind of saunter away yeah. like nothing ever happened right yeah, yeah. here and I, I can only imagine like some of the looks on the Patrons faces must have been hilarious,, yeah. because we literally were low crawling out of the patio into the building, into the physical <laughs> building. once we got into the physical building, we started leapfrogging back, covering each other to right. the kitchen, and we got good defensive position set up, and we're thinking about, okay, I've got like two magazines, you've got two, okay, we need to start looking at other weapons. There's all these kitchen knives and hot water. We've, you know, okay, well, this will be our last stand. This is our Alamo right here, you know. you yeah. <laughs> guys are just like. Hey, yeah, we just won the World Cup. Might want to kind of simmer down a little. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: awesome. to
1: answer your question about the, the conditions and your, your kind of like where
0: you were at that best, that kind of, Sums it up. I think they probably knew you were Americans by then. <laughs> At that point, yeah, for sure, good, <laughs> for <laughs> sure. Hey, bro, we can't go back to that restaurant. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it had good food. I remember that too. Oh, we we'd it. been there a couple yeah. times. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so. Colombian food's awesome, man. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, uh, do you remember? So, and you know, did you did you guys get into conflict? Did you guys get into stuff down there? You know,
1: was it? <clears throat> so the. The correct legal answer yeah. is no. No, yes. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask that. That is the is there is a legal the, answer? Yes, yeah. that is the correct legal answer. Right, yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so, how how long were you, how long did you spend down there? A lot of time. Yeah. I I spent so much time down there. Um my first deployment, I actually went down. I had already deployed early. Mm. And then uh, the sister platoon that was coming down to relieve my platoon had lost a guy mm. so they asked me if I wanted to jump into that platoon so I did Yeah. so I did two back to backs I spent my first deployment I spent almost two years in theater wow. before I came back to the states I mean I was like I didn't even recognize people back at the command Yeah. like people were like who are you new guy and I'm like dude uh, I'm not the new guy anymore yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh <laughs> that's funny so yeah i mean it was great um i did a i did a i had so much fun i made some amazing friends like the my teammates from that that era are some of my closest friends i, I have some of them actually locally here that's we awesome. see we
0: see each other every now and then wow yeah. how did you feel about the nature of that whole you know the the war on drugs how did you feel about it at the time and simple how do you feel about it now
1: uh it was it was my that was my job. Yeah, you know the JSOC pointed is like I tell people I'm like point me towards the enemy, yeah, and then let me go. <laughs> so that was that was what I did. Yeah. I, I didn't give it any thought. I didn't care what the I, you know it's not my place to have a political opinion about what we're doing. Right. My job is you know I am I am you know I am violence delivered for lack of a better way. Right. Yeah. So. so it didn't really phase me at all. Yeah.
0: Makes sense. Yeah. So 12 years in. Yeah. So you got out in about 99 or 2000? Yeah. Exactly in 99. I had,
1: I was a little bit,
0: I was a little, she was just looked like she was chewing on something. <laughs> all good. Oh. We got his, we got his doggy, his yeah. pupper in yeah. here. Beautiful Belgian. Thank you.
1: Yeah. She is. Uh-huh. Oh, somebody woke up from a nappy poo. You <laughs> took a long nap, didn't you? Oh, you're so beautiful. Um, oh, God. Forgive me. What was the question? No, <laughs> no, no,
0: no, no worries. No, I was asking you about. It. You spent twelve years in. Oh, you got out.
1: Right. Yeah. So I had a. So my last tour of duty was at the command uh, at um, our training center in Coronado as an instructor, and I did not think I was going to like that job, but I actually liked it a lot more than yeah. I thought. Really? Mm-hmm. Because, like, all I ever knew was the business end of our community, mm. and so going to a training command to me was. I considered it a step down. Right. And as I was checking out of my command, I I had to go through all of our various departments and get checked out and turn it into gear and uh, whatnot, get my, all my outbriefing. And I went to our training department, who was being the, the senior chief there that was responsible for all the training, was this Vietnam-era frogman. And great guy. I learned so much from him. It's not even funny. Um, my technical skill with demolition, I, I credit him, him and one other guy, the the two of those guys taught me so much about demo. It wasn't even funny. But, um, as I'm checking out, I slide my piece of paper over his desk. I'm standing up, he's sitting down and he's like, you're checking out. I'm like, yeah, where are you going? I'm going, I'm going to Bud's. And I was kind of like, melancholy, you know, Mm -hmm. about it. I was like, no. And he kind of was like, what's wrong? I'm like, well, I, I don't want to go. You know, I'm I'm going because I took those orders because of another teammate there at four was going to have to go unaccompanied, which meant that he was going to have to leave his family behind, mm. his his you know children, wife, everybody would have to stay behind. He'd go over there, and then have to figure out how to keep his family together. So, right, I volunteered to go and take his orders, mm. and um, I kind of like was happy that I was doing that but I wasn't happy that I was leaving my command. Right. So when I um check out I'm kind of a little down in the dumps a little bit cuz I feel like I'm I'm not being demoted but I'm just going I'm taking a downward spiral I guess. Right. <clears throat> and he um he he got livid. Really? Oh, he got pissed. Yeah. Because he knew who I was and he knew my I mean I I worked with him very closely so he knew my capacity and his comment was very i mean afterwards i realized i'd been an ass yeah but his comment was to the to the effect of you know you earned all that experience through the hard work of other seals you owe it to the community to give back Mm, yeah and it was like that's a good point of view. Uh, <laughs> damn, I, I felt like this big at that point. Yeah. Um, you got a
0: Vietnam UDT SEAL team I guy. I got dressed you, down yeah. hard. Yeah, so
1: I, I, tra- I changed my attitude when I... I still had a bad attitude. I'm not going to lie. I still had yeah. a bad attitude, but I changed my majority of my attitude when I went out there. Um, so my last tour of duty out at the center was, was great because the BUD students that went through at that time period later became some of the most decorated, respected, accomplished seals that we had at that time. Yeah. And I stay in touch with a lot of these guys. In fact, I'll be at, uh, unfortunately, funerals where I'll see some of these guys. And I'm just so ridiculously proud of them. Yeah. I mean, and I I didn't value that at the time. I didn't have an appreciation for that until after all of this. And, and, uh, you know, they went on to accomplished so much uh we lost so many of them but you know i um is that tough like you probably remember some of those guys so the way i tell people is like i'm gonna remember i i don't remember per se there's only two reasons why i would remember you yeah one you were a bag (laughs) or 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 two or two you were you were badass yeah and if you were uh you know so i'd always pose the question like the guys would ask me like hey do you remember me instructor gonzalez and i'd be like, Well. I can I can tell you this I'll I'll remember you from one of two reasons you were either a bag or you were badass which one are you you know and they'd be yeah. like, uh, <laughs> you know, so they so that kind of would I don't catch them know. <laughs> would kind of catch them off guard a little bit yeah um so I really enjoyed it but I also felt like working at that command gave me the very foundation for my instructor career. Yeah. You know, I mean, I I learned so much in those three years about being a professional instructor Mm -hmm. that that was what started my adventure in the private sector. Yeah.
0: How how much are you enjoying uh, what you do now? And how did you get into that? How did that happen?
1: So um, it's a funny story, maybe. Uh, (laughs) While I was there. At the command, I got uh, ta- I got a chance to go to several training schools. I went to a couple different shooting schools. And I went to one, and they really liked me as an individual, and they offered me a job. Ooh. And so you got to put it okay. in context. I was in my twilight of my career in uh, June of 1999. Okay. So I had to extend because my orders didn't give me an exact three years of commitment at Bud's. So I had to extend my orders to give them a full three years. Um, What ended up happening was that time period, if you remember, was the run-up for the election between Gore and Bush. Right, yeah. And everybody in the media was saying, this is how naive I was back then, everybody in the media was saying that Gore was going to win on a landslide. Mm. So I had come in under Reagan, worked for Bush, worked through the Clintons, and the prospect of having to work for Gore... Just was more than I could. I, I honestly was yeah. embarrassed at times being overseas, having to deal with the ridiculous foreign policy that the Clinton administration was dishing out. Really, I mean, it was terrible. It changed a lot when they oh were. Oh my in, god, yeah. it was terrible. Yeah, it was so bad. I mean, there were some things that he did okay. Yeah. But for the majority of this foreign policy, was crap, in my opinion. Um, and I can say that now because I no longer am wearing the uniform. Right. But <laughs> I do feel like it was terrible. Yeah. So. At the time, we also found out that my ex-wife was pregnant. Mm. And so, uh, she I mean, we just found out. So the Navy would not allow me to extend through the end of the year to find out who was going to win. So I had to make a judgment call. And I made the call that I was going to leave the Navy because I did not want to work through what I perceived to be eight years of Gore. Yeah. If he won the presidency once, he's going to win it twice. Because right. that's what happened with Clinton and i just was like nope don't want that yeah. don't want that so um i separated at that point and i went to work for that other company where the timing was pretty good and it it really didn't work out for me but i had this i had this mentality that i did not want to i did not want to look like a failure yeah once i left the navy i had made it clear i'm not coming back so when the job opportunity failed, like I was like, okay, well I can't re enlist in the Navy because then I'll do what I said I wasn't gonna do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will have failed in my endeavors. So I kinda took a took a page from the um Christopher Columbus when he burned his boats. Yeah. So when I left the Navy, I, I literally burned my boats. I didn't burn like Ain't the, no going back. Yeah, yeah, I was like, okay, I I have to be if I'm going to do this, I have to be committed to doing this. So uh, after about a year, uh, that didn't work. I got picked up to do work overseas for the State Department, and I started doing that. And in between it all, um, I started trying concepts up. Mm, awesome. And um, Tricon did fantastic in those early years because there really weren't other special operations instructors teaching in the private sector. There were few there was only a handful and we very rarely saw one another because our orbits didn't didn't sync up enough and Yeah. so what ended up happening was like it was a a free you know free fire zone you could just yeah. do and i worked with so many agencies and units and departments during that time period that it was crazy very so um
0: how important uh, during that time I don't mean to interrupt but no. how important during that time was the feedback that the students were giving you know coming back from uh, tours and you know seeing what they saw on the ground um, were you getting were you having to input a lot of change in your programs or were the basic concepts kind of staying the same
1: so the the yeah the foundation work didn't really change yeah uh, there was one major change which was when we shifted from the Iraq theater to the Afghanistan theater. And that just happened to deal with distance. Mm, gotcha. You know, the, the engagements in Iraq were typically 50 meters in and in Afghanistan, they were greater. So right. that changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, but when I, when I started Tricon, you know, we were doing great and it was awesome. Um, I don't remember how many years Tricon had been up and running, but I got a call from a former teammate of mine, guy named uh, gary jackson who was uh, the president of blackwater at the time Mm. and he said to me hey i've got a deal i've got a i got a good i got a good gig going you're gonna want to be on this and i'm like well what is it i can't tell you you're gonna be receiving a ticket an airline ticket you need to get on the plane and come out here (laughs) i'm like really he's like yeah your ticket will be there any minute now, and like I, I got off Sounds the phone, horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I get off the phone, and there's a FedEx envelope with an airline ticket for me. Yeah, flying back out because I was living in Arizona at that point. Yeah, so um, I got on the plane, and I I said, okay, well, can you at least tell me who's involved? Mm-hmm. And he listed off some of the names, and I was like, I'll be there. Yeah, so I flew out there. I was a plank owner for Blackwater's initial work overseas. Wow. What they did, um, I did that for a while and it kind of it reached a it reached a kind of like it reached a boiling point if you will where the time I was spending overseas even though I was making really good money I was losing money because Tricon was doing better right so i eventually uh, stopped deploying overseas and focused exclusively on tricon and yeah. and that has been the case up until about 3 years ago when i started working here mm. tricon still is very active i still do a lot of work um domestically throughout the country but um you know this is this is the other the other job that i have if you will yeah yeah right yeah. at the range
0: mm-hmm. what a uh, what was the landscape like at the time with you know and i don't know how much you can get into that but you know being with blackwater and deploying overseas obviously there was some controversy surrounding them um that what was, came much later yeah right What was it like being overseas with them and and were was everything pretty clear to you guys as far as when you were over there, as far as rules and Um, regulations and
1: So my rule of thumb is simple. If Uh you're gonna put me in, you need to expect me to kill somebody. (laughs) And and I tell them that. I'm like, you know, and I don't I don't say that (laughs) I don't say that to be uh, misrepresented. I say that because if you're going to put me in a theater where there's hostilities, you need to assume that those hostilities can erupt and that I I will be called to act. And when I act, it will likely end in death. So um, what's your plan? Right. You know, what are you going to do when that happens? And I found that the host, if you will, was more inclined to sidestep that question. Mm. They didn't like it. Gotcha. They didn't like it at all. Yeah. And I was like, well, what's the answer? Yeah. And eventually we got an answer. And I was told never to respond to questions from the suits anymore. Yeah. And so, because we went into this giant like business room, like this mm-hmm. meeting room at these with these lawyers that can only be described as $1,000 an hour lawyers yeah, yeah. that were painting the picture, the landscape for us. And then they asked, do you have any questions? And I was like, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> what are you going to do when I kill somebody? Uh-huh. So I could have possibly phrased that a little better, but.
0: <laughs> How is that? You know, it's, it's such a weird concept to people, though, to think about going into a room full of lawyers when your job is warfare. It is
1: weird, but that was uh-huh. in the private sector. So it, right. it was a new landscape for yeah. us. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. And and not to, not to diss on them. They provided us with some very valuable information. Yeah, and our job was pretty, pretty uh, clear cut. Yeah, um, there was good times and bad times. You know, I mean, it's it's it is it's the it's the chaos of, of war. There's 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 things that are always going to go well, and there are things that are not going to go well.
0: Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, did you in, did you enjoy that time though? Did you enjoy did. being over there? I
1: I will tell yeah. you that what, what I enjoyed. I enjoyed two things. I enjoyed being back in the tight knit community, if you will. Because mm-hmm. everybody on our with the exception of I think three people, everybody on our team were all former team oh, guys. Okay. Um and honestly, I did believe in the mission. No bite. I did believe in the mission. Um and I, 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 I several years later, I was asked to speak at a I was asked to speak at a like an annual conference of some sort. And they had asked me to speak on my experience in Afghanistan. Mm. And I was like, well, I, I can talk to you as a private citizen. I can't I can't discuss um, geopolitical scenarios. Right. Right? It's not my position to do that. They're like, yeah, no, we just want to hear your experience. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. fine, I'll do it. Um, what they didn't tell me was that they were going to have an opposing view. <laughs> and uh, when I show Jeez. up there, yeah, when I show up there, I go first and I start talking. And what I tell people was... My observations, like when I first got on the ground, we did not see a single female. Other than the females in our compound, there was no females on the ground. Wow. Then after a deployment or two, you started to see them, uh, you know, again, if you understand the religion, you understand that they are required by their law to, um, they cannot move individually. They have to move in groups mm. or hordes. And then they have to be fully clad when they are. Right. So. After the first deployment, I didn't see anybody, and then we started to see them working in groups. They would come out there in twos and threes with all their kids and stuff, full-clad head to toe burkas. Um, then, after another deployment or two, I started to see just the face veil, mm. you know. And then on my last deployment, I saw in downtown Kabul a female walking around in Western business attire. Wow. Which, if you understand that region at that time period, that in and of itself speaks volumes yeah. about our involvement there.
0: That, that wasn't happening since before the Taliban. No,
1: <clears throat> not yeah, at all. Right. So it was a little bit um, rewarding in that sense. Yeah. And, and it was tough because the, the people, the populace, kind of, they kind of knew the American playbook which is we're going to get involved. We're going to rah, 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 get you all excited. You're going to do a lot of things for us. Then we're going to leave. Yeah, And I was trying to relay that our experience there was so valuable that we, like I was there when women had the chance to vote in the presidential election. Wow. And it was so cool because they would walk when they would see Americans. And it's not like you can't tell who we are um, in the, in the public. They would give you a thumbs up. And what that signified was that to to vote they had to put they had to put their thumbprint on little the links. ballot. Yeah. So it was covered in this purple ink. Yeah. So when they when they when they showed you that purple ink, it meant they were thanking you for what we had done because it gave them the opportunity to vote in their presidential elections. That's so. Cool. Which had not been the case. So anyhow, I um I do my little piece. I take questions from the audience, and I had some good questions that. You know, again, I'm like, again, I can't answer about geopolitical situations, scenarios, but I can just tell you about my experience here. And then there was this one lady and she was in the front row mm-hmm. and the entire time she was just scowling at me. <laughs> and I'm like, what's her? She already b-? has her opinion. Yeah, <laughs> she, I'm like, what's her problem? Right. Yeah. And, lo- and I'm like, please don't, please don't, please don't, please don't. And then yeah. she asked, you know, after, you know, the other guy, she asked the question. So she was like the fourth person that asked a question. And and I I was trying to be nice to her and just relay, again, I cannot speak on our policy. It's not my place to say this policy is good, this policy is bad, blah, blah, blah. I'm just relaying to you what I saw on the ground. Right. Take it for what it's worth. That's real-time information about if you want to interpret that from our policies, the effectiveness of our policies. But make your own assessment. Don't ask me to tell you. Yeah. So then um, she just got really just, I mean, she was um, she was trying to poke and sharpshoot and, mm. and create issues. And I finally lost it with her. I was like, ma'am, I'm tired of dealing with your rhetoric. And oh. I will tell you right now that if I had the ability to transport you and I to this country for us to have a sit down conversation like we're doing right now in public. Mm-hmm. If I were to step away from that table, you would be killed. yeah, you would be you would be killed for breaking the law, for being alone with another, unmarried, un- uh, being with a male, not being dressed conservatively in a burqa or a head veil, um having your own opinion that you are arguing with the male, like don't you understand what you're doing right now? Doesn't exist in that country. Yeah. Don't you recognize that as progress? Can't you at least acknowledge that you and I having this conversation is 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 is, is our opportunity here in America that doesn't exist in other yeah. countries.
0: You could have literally slaughtered her in that scenario, and it would have been. Okay.
1: I mean, when I got on the ground there, we we were doing our routes, and we went by a very famous soccer field. And mm. the soccer field was still littered with I heard about that. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the stadium. So- yeah, yeah, the soccer field stadium on the yeah. ground. The dirt was still discolored from the blood from the oh stonings. My gosh. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, I mean, this is real. This is yeah. not. This is not thick made up stuff. This is actual real. And if you haven't, and I asked her the first question I asked, Have you ever been to that region? Have you ever been to that part of the world? No. Yeah. I'm like, so your opinions don't really have experience to draw on <laughs> did you even read the kite runner
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't even think that was out at that time maybe oh yeah, okay, I, yeah. I don't even know but yeah, yeah For yeah, education. Yeah, yeah exactly it's like yeah.
1: hey just stop for a second stop yeah. being a bitch and just think for a moment that the fact that you and i are having this disagreement if we were to have that disagreement in afghanistan yeah. right now you would die yeah it's a
0: privilege, and for it's you not a pretty death. Being yeah. stoned
1: to death is not pretty. I no, mean, it no. is not
0: pretty. Yeah. Oof. yeah,
1: yeah. There's some videos online that we had to watch before we left, and yeah. that was one of them.
0: Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen a few. It's very disturbing. It and is. what's crazy is like, and, and what people don't realize is like that was a common means of that was execution. It. Back that, then. Was the, yeah. that was
1: that was that it. was well it, it 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 wasn't viewed as execution because if you got out of the sack, and could get away from the pit then you were spared. Wow, really? Yeah. You were oh. put in a sack and put in a pit and your uh. the sack goes all the way up to your neck. Right. And so they just they just throw rocks at you the entire time. So if you can get out of the sack and climb out of the pit and stand up, then you have just saved your life. Jeez. So oh. they they look at it like, well, you had a chance. Yeah. Wow. No, it's not our fault. Gosh. This is your punishment. Your punishment is that you die. Yeah. But this is your punishment. Yeah. So that's, it's not, it wasn't, that's the, that's a common misunderstanding per se. It wasn't an assassination or it wasn't murder. Mm-hmm. It was punishment.
0: Yeah. Do you feel like since you've you gotten out of that and been, you know, away from that arena, do you feel like Afghanistan as a, you know, as a country has a chance now?
1: Oh, uh, it's hard. I, I don't think – like I think you need to define what chance right. means. It's very vague, yes. You know, because <laughs> honestly, there are people out there that don't want to be Americans. Right. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. I don't have to enforce or impose my views on you. Um, just don't murder your own people. Right. Right? Don't murder your own people and I don't care. Yeah. I don't care what you do. Right. If you don't want to be uh, – if you don't want to have the same values that I have,
0: yeah. cool. that's what a lot of people don't understand about, you know, quite a few of our conflicts is, you know, maybe not every conflict has been started for the right reasons or whatever that is, but the simple fact is, is that when an atrocity is being committed and people are being killed in their own country, that's one of the, you know, f- that's one of the principles of the United States of America that we step yeah. up in that setting and, yeah. we, you know, p- we take care of the bully. Yeah, and, it is. You know, and, you know, people... The funny thing is, is when that happens, people are like, you know, we need... Wh- where are we at? How come we're not taking care of the bully? But then sometimes we take care of the bully and we're over
1: there for a while. It's tough. soon get restless. It's, it's, a, it's a tough... It's a tough it's a tough situation. Yeah. Like I always I always tell people this. I'm like I am the strongest. You'll you will not find a you will not find a stronger advocate for diplomacy than myself. Because when diplomacy fails, you need to get out of my way. Right. Because there's no other option at that point. Right. Diplomacy is designed to peacefully resolve conflict. Yeah. And when it doesn't, the only way to solve conflict is to go to war and war is not about the war is about destroying the entrenched mentality. If, and if that, it means killing off the people as you're doing it. That's how you win
0: the war. Right. And a lot of people don't understand that you don't want to have to turn up to that level, but if you have to, that's what I'm
1: saying. It's like, we've watered that down. Like in, 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 and you could see it through the generations of conflict right we watered it down we we changed things up we got more politically correct about this or about that um and i disagree with that i am like you should involve you should invest 99% of all of your efforts in diplomacy yeah. and honest very resolute diplomacy and when that fails then you step out of the way yeah you set clearly defined objectives you, you administer those to the military chain of command
0: and you get out of the way. I just had a guy on who's a UDT uh, member in Vietnam, mm. you know, and SEAL Team 1, UDT Team 11. And uh, he was, you know, he was over there in Vietnam for like three years. Wow. But he talked about like his time in the jungles and like often, you know, having to fight with you know politicians you oh, know for sure. on a level, all the time to where the rules of engagement were constantly changing, and as soon as that would happen with the special operations, one of the special operations commanders would be like, "Okay, cool, like I'm pulling all my guys out of theater
1: it's 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 frustrating, like I remember when we were about ready to do our first our first real world op, we got orders that came down from the c o no h e what is it?" Uh, no high explosive. Oh, right, right. Okay. So we couldn't use any of our, any, no grenades, no rockets, no mines, Yeah. Uh, no C4, nothing, mm-hmm. which is like part and parcel. It's like blood, bullets, and bombs. <laughs> That's what I take with me. And so, direct action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so you, that was part of the rules of engagement that got pushed down on us that, you know, it's like.
0: Nothing you can do about it. There isn't. uh, I mean, just hope you have command that sticks up for you in that setting.
1: Well, I mean, you what you do is you put your you put your people at risk for the sake of others. Right. Like we're smart enough and skilled enough and capable enough to avoid needless loss of life.
0: Yeah. But this is war. Yeah.
1: And so while we're not going out there to do that there are casualties of war that we can if we try if if you try to curtail that so much that you that you tie or you bind the the effective means of number 1 executing the the orders from your chain of command and then number 2 putting your personnel at such high risk yeah it's it's terrible
0: you know, I could see it in this guy, uh, Mike Kip, who I'm talking about, who who was over there. Uh, you know, he he you just see the heartbreak. Yeah, like it sucks. you know, his, I mean, it's terrible because you're mental like mental side was hurt.
1: You you, you lose. So, I mean, we we train for as many eventualities as possible, and part of that means that we have a rather uh, elaborate inventory arsenal, right? And so we work with all of those because those are all tools that allow us to. To work effectively and efficiently at accomplishing our mission, mm. and so when you start to pull those tools out of our tool bag, and now everything is a hammer as yeah. opposed to having other tools that can solve the problem, it makes it hard, man. Yeah. So
0: I definitely wanted to get into Trident concepts a little yeah. bit, and uh, you know, talk about that. What, what, what's you know, what are your principal factors in you know having this company? Like, what, it, what is it based upon? What, what do you really want to leave? Your students with
1: when they when they step out step away from the course. The best thing that I can, or the best way I can answer that is, you know, our job is to prepare a student for the worst day of their life. You know, the fact that they would have to use deadly force, Um, and we take it very seriously, and we we have to uh, approach this delicately because a lot of people are not really they're not really aware of that. You know, they don't really acknowledge how what's at stake. Like a lot of times they feel like I'm just carrying this pistol, handgun as a talisman. Like I'm going to ward off evil because I have this, right? They, they haven't really addressed the real issue that they may have to actually use it.
2: Yeah.
1: Are they trained? Are they skilled? Um, are they ready? That's kind of what my, my job is, is to try to help them navigate through those awkward, uncomfortable decisions and discussions that they have to have then prepare them physically through the manual of arms that we teach what's the
0: most challenging avenue that, are you are you, tra- are you training people at different levels like oh, you're yeah. dealing with so you're dealing with it, everybody oh yeah yeah what's yeah. the most difficult uh class to teach
1: uh I don't know if difficult to work, yeah, you know. I mean
0: just more complex or
1: well, I mean when we get into the advanced level programming, I mean, it's it's obviously very challenging because it's a lot more uh there's higher risk involved. So there's a safety component that's a little bit more difficult to manage in some cases. Um you can experience that on the flip side on the upper other, other end of the spectrum with new shooters as well. New shooters can sometimes like be real (laughs) real sketchy but we have good protocols in place and we progress at a rate that allows everybody to to be comfortable with the gun which will then increase their safety you know when you're not comfortable is when you need to be worried right yeah um so what's the the most difficult i mean that's a that's a hard thing i think honestly the difficulty is not necessarily in the training yeah but in managing the expectations of the students Mm. What what I mean by that is that there can sometimes be a, a flux of skill level in classes, right? So you might have somebody that believes that they're more advanced than they think. Mm-hmm. And you may also have people that are underselling their skills. So that can be difficult to try to get them to be properly placed in the right class for them. Yeah. And then at that point, it's about managing the entire class. So if I have a class, um, and I have students of a varying degree and we use kind of like a collegiate scale for our classes like our 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 middle of the road classes a 2.0 you know basics like 1.0 advanced 3.0 so um, with that with the curriculum the way it's designed is that I have the ability to kind of press it forward or push it back so I can I can ramp it up to a 2.5 or I can scale it down to a 1.5 and and unfortunately, that's kind of a very um, common thing that I have to do when I'm traveling because I'll have a student that will register for a class that might be a little underprepared and I might have a student that will register for the class that's a little bit like it's, uh, you know, it's I got to keep him entertained. Right. I've got to really keep him engaged, right? And I can't allow the underskilled to check out. I've got to keep him engaged. So really it's about engagement, keeping everybody engaged so that I can so so that I can draw out of them their very best performance. Right. And that's sometimes the most challenging thing is trying to draw out elevated performance from somebody that doesn't feel like they can do it. Yeah. So how do you do that? Um, There's a lot of ways. The first way is you have to gain their trust. Hmm. And that's probably the most important thing. And then you have to allow the progressions or the programming Um you you have to they have to get buy in into the programming and we tell people you got to trust the process right and then the third part is that they have to manage their own expectations like hollywood doesn't do us any favors with with <laughs> the way they depict a lot of this and so right. everybody's like oh i should be able to do this you know in this fast and i'm like well you know, sometimes we invest two to three weeks in our own guys to get them to this level. Right. So maybe you might want to just give yourself a little bit more time because that's the other problem is that they, they, they have this expectation that they're going to be this good and then they're not. And then they start to get a little not upset, but disappointed. And that disappointment then challenges the opportunity for them to come back and do more training, which would, then help them right but because they are disappointed that they didn't do as well as they thought they were going to do they sometimes uh, step back yeah or look for
0: something else it's funny because i think we're you know I, I can't really speak to this specifically but i think we're in a culture of quick fixes oh for sure and like yeah. part of that probably plays back into that right because there's nothing about your job That is, you know, on the special operations side, you know, or or even on the civilian side of that, that's easy and not complex. True. It's one of the hardest jobs you can ever be involved in. For sure. So it makes, it would make absolute sense to me that, (laughs) (laughs) I've been in the military. Yeah. (laughs) But like, getting in, like... This is going to have a very big learning curve.
1: I think I, I th- that's what I mean by managing those expectations. Right. Like we try to be forthright and we try. Number one, I tell people that if you can drive a car, then you'll be able to shoot a gun. Yeah. You just have to realize that when you were learning to drive that car, it took some time. Yeah. Same thing here. Same process. And we're really good at connecting with students in other uh, other areas of their life that they can draw on mm-hmm. to help them. So if I have somebody that's a golfer or somebody that's a runner or somebody that loves to drive cars fast, you know, I've got – I I can draw parallels between what they know so that what they don't know becomes less. Mm. You know, there's less – less mud in the water, if you will. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. I've got, so I've got a few, uh, questions. Oh yeah. A little, we're going to do a little fan questions. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. We've got, uh, a couple of good ones that I really liked. Oh, here.
1: wow. A couple. Yeah. Okay. Let's what you got? See.
0: We got one from Anna in Georgia. She's got a question for you. She said, um, so for females carrying concealed weapons, I mm-hmm. feel like it's a little more tricky. Uh, our entire fashion world makes it more challenging. In addition to the fact that it is a foreign world to a lot of women, what tips do you have specifically for women carrying and learning how to utilize a weapon?
1: So I would first answer her question by saying it is absolutely more tricky, yeah, or trickier, um, and 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 partly for a couple of reasons. The the one that she addressed was the fashion world. It's really hard. You know, women are encouraged to be fashionable and I, I don't, I don't discourage it because it's, it's nice. I'm yeah. not going to lie, <laughs> uh, but it makes it hard. Yeah. Um, the second thing is that there are more females entering this industry than any other demographic right now. This really? is, this is the sort amazing time to be in this industry, yeah. um, particularly in the concealed carry market. So I would say that right now is is a perfect opportunity for you to seek out a qualified um, instructor or school that you can now find good training from. Um, I, I can't give names where everybody is, but you know, if you just do some decent Google searching and look around, you may find that. And if not, your next best case is to travel uh, myself and many other trainers travel all over the country mm. and offer that type of training. So, um, from a practical point of view, the key thing about um women carrying for me is making them feel comfortable that they can carry and then making them feel confident that they can carry mm. and When I can accomplish both of those tasks, the details sort themselves out mm, gotcha, like how they're going to do it, where they're going to do it, all those other I'm not going to get involved in trying to, to you know trying to lay fashion tips for women <laughs> as far as how to carry concealed you know yeah, yeah. but i can tell them the that there are certain principles that transcend genders race age right. you name it they're just principles they they're going to transcend no matter what mm. and at that point once they have that comfort and confidence they'll solve those problems on their own mm. yeah was
0: a good question it was uh we've got another one from uh, c Martinick. And he said, uh, let me find it here. He said, yo, so I'll admit I don't know much about vets, but I love the project. Uh, Tim's work is legit. Okay, well, no need to pump me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Can you ask Jeff what he'd recommend to someone who just got a gun as far as getting an instructor?
1: So that is a Go great, to Jeff. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Let's just assume that you can't do that. Yeah. Um, the first thing that I would say is uh, before you do read the manual that came with the gun. Mm. Right. And and that's a hard thing for males in particular. It's like, uh, I mean, how many manuals have you actually ever read? Right. Right. So, but in not this, even one for my own camera. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. So my first piece of advice is yeah. to read the manual, yeah. learn, learn about your gun. Yeah. Um, be as familiar as you possibly can about and, and, and the, the manufacturer is the, is the source for that information right now. Yeah. You know, they, they provide you with a pretty detailed manual that's got a lot of good information in there. Read it front to back, understand your gun. Mm. Um, after that, I tell people that getting into an NRA basic pistol class because they are prolific in the country is a good start. Yeah. It's a it's if you're starting if you're trying to get into this world, it's hard to argue with what the NRA has been doing for so many years. Yeah. And they, they have in some cases like a black cloud that floats over them, but their training education is solid. Yeah. And and what I mean by that for the average shooter, for the, for the new gun owner, first time gun buyer, they provide excellent information Mm. and I like it. I, I think like that's a good way for me to safely tell somebody, find a, a certified NRA instructor in your area, see what kind of classes that they teach, ask some questions. And then if you feel like it's a good choice, then attend. Because what that's going to do is that's going to set in motion the idea that training education is important. And you will eventually find that what you get out of the NRAs is going to fill your glass up this much. And then you're going to need to go outside of that to get more information. Um, and that means that you'll have to start looking at other instructors. And as far as like how to vet instructors, I mean, that's a hard one to really give people a good black and white answer. I Slick would s- on Yelp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yelp reviews are Star awesome. <laughs> yes. Um, what, what I don't do, do that. <laughs> what, I, yes, what, what I do recommend is to do some research on the instructor. And if they have in their background an actual um, whether they were law enforcement military or private as a professional instructor like that was a duty that they held a profession that they performed that's a good start mm. you know I mean there's a lot of guys that are good at shooting, but there's not a lot of guys that are or girls that are good at relaying that information right and that's the tough part. you want to find somebody that's a professional instructor that knows how to communicate transmit information so that you can understand it so that you can then take that information and apply it and that's the part that is often overlooked from the instructor side is that i could be the very best in the world at this or that but if i cannot communicate that to you to where you understand the information and then can recall that information and apply that information doesn't matter yeah does not matter
0: when you're working with you know high level guys like a tim kennedy like guys like that you know what what are what are the things that you really work on with guys like that like what well
1: i mean when tim and i get together and we try to shoot as often as we can schedule permits schedule permitting um i'm not really i'm not really teaching him things yeah we'll set up drills that will identify weaknesses in in all of our shooting and so I don't have to tell him what he's doing wrong. He knows what he's doing wrong. Yeah. You know, especially when it's it's him and I or you know, him and another guy and there's a a competitive fervor going on there. Yeah. there there's that that kind of need to try to go hard and go fast. It's great to do that. I mean, that's one of the things that I um like so much about the opportunity. It's not that I don't enjoy hanging out with Tim, but what I really enjoy when we get together to shoot is that there is a level of Uh, intensity that really is hard to replicate for me. It really is. So I am... Like, it's my crack in some respects. You notice
0: that base foundation of being a Navy SEAL that's been in you. Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, even in your workouts, I noticed on your Instagram, you just always... you're always uh cracking on yourself like there's mm-hmm. always some component where it's like Man, oh, that's i mean that's yeah. common at the highest levels though you're, yeah. there's almost like this self-degradation but it's like you know you're you're degrading yourself but you're building yourself up through that i
1: mean the thing that i tell people is that you cannot be afraid to fail right you cannot be afraid to make a mistake or hold something back or not not pursue something because then you're you you find yourself only working in your comfort zone yeah and we had a saying that I still live this day, which is get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? <laughs> I've heard that one. Yeah. And it's, it's a fantastic metaphor for everything. And so, you know, when we get together to shoot, a lot of times the drills that we're shooting are the professional development stuff that I do for myself that I'll just bring into that kind of situation, that setting with him and I and anybody else that's there. And we'll just, we'll go at it. I mean, and the thing about it is that it, it, it illuminates to me where my areas are that I need to work. Yeah, and it does the same for him. Like right. I, I don't need to say, "Well, I'll change your grip, change your size, change this, change that." He knows what he needs to do. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple more questions because I for know sure. you're lacking on the time.
0: Um, no, it's okay. So when you, you know, when you got out of the out of the SEAL teams, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you were you were going into the private sector. You know, can you talk about a little bit about the personal side of that, and like you know, mm-hmm. getting out of that as a as a person and. How did that affect your mentality? You know, did you did you feel like you lost something?
1: Was that tough? Mm. Sorry, no, oh, it's I'm okay. Kisses, <laughs> yes, baby. Oh, that's the mic, baby. That's the mic. Leave the mic alone. <laughs> um, we're just we're,
0: we're over here having a photo session. Yeah. as Well, so Rizzo's I taking stealing my, yeah. the camera here yeah. as
1: she always does. Yeah. Um, so I never felt like I lost anything per se. I, I mean, it's like, um, it's like an island. If you didn't bring it, you're not going to find it. So uh, what the Navy did was the Navy took what I had and freaking just maximized it. Yeah, You know, they, they gave me the, the opportunities. They gave me the timing. They gave me the resources. They gave it everything that I needed to be successful. And what they did was they they told me to go be successful. Mm. They didn't tell me how. Right. They just said, do it, right? And that's the same mentality that I still have to this day. Like there were plenty of times when they told me what to do. Don't get me wrong. But what I meant by that is like um, there's a certain expectation that we have within our community. It's like it's simple. It's like I don't want to ever be the guy on the mission that failed. Right. So I train myself religiously and feverishly to not be that guy. Yeah. Right. So I, I don't want to have a weak spot. I don't want to have any areas that would cost my teammate or the mission. Yeah. You know, it's just that that was. And so the Navy just gave you the opportunity to do that. They they put it down, out in front of you and you were, you were expected to be at the top of your game. Mm. They didn't, once you got to the team area, it's a totally different ball game. You weren't told what to do anymore. You were, you were given boundaries and then there was an expectation put on you. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think the best frogman actually kind of, um, were produced, you know, they, they were produced because it was basically the Navy just getting out of the way. Yeah. Just get it. That's interesting. You know, I,
0: I think that I find that, uh, so common now in this, you know, kind of post nine 11 era uh but guys getting out and you know and and kind of like not understanding the tangible skill set that connects right in the civilian sector yeah and there is some of that yeah but what you're saying right now is an amplification of really what should be said to even guys are getting out of the front side or whatever it's like listen you might not have learned that actual like tangible skill to go be that ceo or whatever or start your own company but what they did teach you those intangibles that civilians aren't learning, like unless it's parented into them, for sure but you can't you can't teach what you can't teach what the dynamic of combat teaches and what the dynamic oh. of being on a team teaches. It's
1: so true, and and that's one of the things that I tell um, a lot. Of my like my advice is um, most people, and it took me some years to really pinpoint exactly what my mission was for my naval career, you know, and it. it it was the brotherhood, you know. It was it was serving something bigger than me. It was um, being faithful to my team and our mission, and then living the life, you know, basically being the example. Uh, so when we call that, you know, living the life, it's it's implied that you are you are setting the example for others to follow, mm-hmm. you know, the younger generation, if you will. And so, you know, all of that to some extent is part of the DNA for many veterans yeah. and a lot of times what they lack is they lack direction because we were so used to having that direction. Yeah, You know, command would give you your op order and then you would create your mission and would get approved and then you'd go and do it. So the problem that many veterans have right now is that there's no command element giving you the op order. Mm. And that's hard. That was a hard thing for me. I floundered a little bit because I wasn't entirely sure that I didn't recognize that basically I was the person responsible for giving the op order and then I was the person responsible for executing the op. Yeah. You know, and that took some time because you just you're 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 floundering to some extent, like where's this op order coming from? Where do I where do I go to get it? Where where's my guidance? Yeah, you know, where's the commander's intent that tells me what I need to do? <laughs> it's lacking to some extent once you move into the private sector and that I did struggle with in the beginning. I was lucky that some of the things that I did were just, they pointed me in the right direction and said, go do what you know how to do. Just do it in this environment.
0: I think that's where the special operations side translates over so well is because you guys have like a very individualized element.
1: It's very, I'm not going to, I do not disagree with that statement at all, but I feel like, Within the military in general, there is still, like, be the very best, uh, whatever, whatever it was. If you're a mortar man, be the very best that you can as a mortar man. Yeah. If you're a machine gunner, be the very best of a machine gunner. Understand what it means to do that and then go do it. Yeah. Figure it out and do it because that's what I need. I need somebody on the battlefield that is going to take that initiative, and that's what wins fights. It's the It's the lead element not the echelon element that win the fights. Yeah. You know, they're the ones that are able to make those timely decisions that matter in a crucial environment. There's no time there's, you know, we call it, you know, it's, it's initiative based, you know, set me on my course, provide me with my boundaries, tell me what the intent is and then get out of the way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And it's the
1: same thing, the same thing to a certain extent within the the private sector. It's like you need to establish your own commander's intent. You need to establish your own boundaries left and right. You need to establish your own um, uh, you know, expectations of when you want to try to have achieved this mission, whatever that mission might be. You know, year one, year three, year five. Those are good examples. Where do I want to be in year one, th- year three, year five? Establish some tangible metrics that you can then use as your foundation. Yeah. And that's that's, a good point. I mean, I will tell you that that's not at all what I did, <laughs> but that's what I wish I had done. That's what I look back because I floundered in that sense. I, I yeah. like, I kind of lost my way because I didn't know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do for a while. Like I knew I wanted to kind of go in this, this kind of like direction, this world, if you will, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to look like for about four years I think it was and then like all of a sudden it clicked I'm like oh this is it I'm, yeah. now now I just need to dial it in even more so I kept over the years I just keep dialing it down to where it's just laser focused and mm. and it's you know and every now and then I have to shift the direction of the laser to some extent but yeah. it's so finite at this point and I'm I'm not I, I tell people that I'm not a very good businessman um neither am I. <laughs> yeah. I, I really struggle with some of the most basic of business sense. Yeah. But I make up for it by providing such a excellent service product that it can kind of bridge the gap.
0: Yeah. That's how I feel about the project. Sometimes I get sponsorships or something happens, I'm like, I don't really think I engineered that. I think it's the fact that people just believe in the work. <laughs> like I, I don't know that you know, I. I mean, could've...
1: but you could then kind of go back. It's chicken or the egg. Then you kind of go back and say, well, you know, I, I instituted that through my my op order, right. which is now being observed by the theater. That's if you a good will. point. Yeah, yeah. Growing your business with Jeff Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah yes. we're doing, you know, growing your business in the Sahara Desert with Jeff Gonzalez. <laughs> you have this little bottle of water and a seedling. Good luck. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was definitely, there was a lot of lessons learned, a lot of trials and tribulations that I went through. Um, what I think turned, and I mentioned this the other day, what I feel like turned out, what I thought was going to be my greatest obstacle turned out to be my greatest strength, mm. which was the... Um, like there's a certain expectation that I had when I was working with my guys. Yeah. Like, again, I don't, I, I'm going to tell you exactly what I expect. And then it's like, go, I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm going to make sure that you're doing it. And if you're not, I'm going to tweak it, right. but I'm not going to sit here and try to handhold you through it. Um, so I had a, a certain level and also the big one was the mentality, mm. you know, like any, and I feel like this is across the board, special operations, even, 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 you know, the military in general, um, just that mentality, like, it's it's a, it's a it's a it's a tangible item that is very intangible to others, in in some ways. You and, you know it's kind of hard to explain that, but yeah. um, it's kind of like porn. You know it when you see it. Mm. Gotcha. Um, but what ends up happening was when I realized that these students that were in my class were not special operations mm. elements. It wasn't a bad thing. You know, and what I did at that point was I had to understand each of these students individually. So when I worked, I worked for the mission, for the greater good of the mission of our team, unity, command, whatever it was. Right. Um, And if you weren't able to, as an individual, to fulfill the mission, then you were part of the problem. Mm. Right. And I would replace, you know, I would work feverishly to get rid of you. Yeah. Now, now that was my job. I tell them, I tell that very bluntly. Yeah. Um, Love the honesty. Yeah, and then on the flip side, in the private sector, it's different because i I have so many different. Instead of the the mission driving everything, it's the individual yeah. that drives everything. And what you, you dealing with a ton of complexities. Well, that's I mean, the thing. Personality. Oh, and all that's of that. the biggest yeah. thing. You know you you have you have the individual. But you also have what what really drives it for me is individuals that's true. You get to know them in class. But what's so important is to learn how they learn. Mm. Once I understand how you learn, how this student learns, and it sometimes isn't easy. Sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes there's some barriers that kind of hide it all. But once you can... Once you learn how they learn and you can start affecting change in their behavior that shows them that they can do this, now they have developed that level of trust. And they're willing to go out on a limb and expose some vulnerabilities that they might not have been willing to do previously by admitting or acknowledging or recognizing that they don't have the skill, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the ability, right? And so when when you can do that, and you basically have to put yourself in the student's shoes and recognize who they are and where they are and not re- you know you don't you can't put yourself in their shoes and see yourself in the mirror yeah you have to be able to see them in the mirror and you have to be able to see kind of what are their struggles what are they having a hard time with is it a, you know um, it, it, if if it's a petite female is it the grip if it's an uh, older an older shooter? Is it their stamina? If is it a younger shooter that has eyesight issues? Whatever the case might be, and those are just physical limitations. Those don't even get into the cognitive side of the house. You know, talking about you know psychomotor versus the cognitive, and it's like, <laughs> you know, because honestly, I can teach a monkey to shoot, really, but yeah. the cognitive aspect of helping them to understand the whys—that is what is really the hardest part. Mm. That's the that's the trick at the on the instructor side. That's what you get paid the big bucks is to helping the students number 1 understand the why and then number 2 believe that they can do the why. Mm. And so when you're teaching
0: them you know you work through all kinds of active scenarios i imagine is there um is most of the a time lot of home to, defense it, this, well
1: i mean the thing about it is that we have kind of like two main we have two main areas that we focus. We have the marksmanship side of the house like this is just the mechanics of learning this is the technically correct way to have to shoot a gun. Yeah. All right? Then there's the application of that that goes into situational. So there's the technical and the situational. And the situational, a lot of times, that's where we start with the concealed carry side of the house, meaning that we start to teach you how to carry concealed. Then we start to teach you um, the laws, the rules of engagement, if you will. Then uh, how to best conceal, what's the best firearm, what's the best holster, what's the best positioning. So that's all situational. That, that that, That then takes your marksmanship skills that you already have and now applies them in a situation. Right or the context of a situation mm, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: So what do what do you enjoy the most in particular about your job here, uh, being the director? I mean, well, I'm sure. There's a lot. I
1: just it's a it is, there's a lot, but I love seeing students recognize that they can achieve what they set their minds out to, and we are just a mentor in that process. Mm. Um, I had a young lady uh, in a class just uh, the beginning of this month, November the 1st. And she was already a good shooter, but there were a lot of flaws in her technique that were partly put there by, by other instructors and then just partly put there because didn't know any different. right? right? Um, and we worked with her to get past a lot of those, and then all of a sudden it was just like a flick of a switch. She just turned it on and never looked back, hmm. and and that's the point that I love when they recognize they're like, oh yeah, it's like I mean, <laughs> literally, you could see it in their face and their body language, the confidence that they're exuding now, with that they can willfully place the bullet exactly where they want on hmm. command, repetitively, right? And watching her do that was awesome. That's awesome, and that's the, the, that's the kind of um, that's the kind of fuel that fuels me yeah. to to an extent like the watching the students successes and you know they don't often happen to that extent like like that light switch sometimes it's more of like a dimmer it kind of comes on a little yeah. bit at a time yeah. and then eventually it's bright you know right. but even though even then i still find value in watching that because they're 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 taking on that information at a pace that is that is what they can manage mm. you know that's the hard part is that everybody learns at different Levels and speeds right. and, oops, right. and um, conditions, so not always works out perfect. Yeah, you know. But watching people come back and back and back and see the growth is great. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we created what we call here the Gunfighter Club, which is um, a monthly training subscription. Mm. So for um, yeah, talk about that. What is that? So mm. it's uh, basically what you do is you pay a monthly fee, which is just two twenty five a month for sixteen hours of of actual training well you know like real training like our eight any of our eight or 16 hour classes and it's been hugely successful the the biggest reason that it's been successful in my opinion is because it has established the importance behind consistency Mm. and how the more consistent you are with your growth the bigger your growth will be Right. So and it's hard to see a student that comes to one class and then doesn't do anything for a long time and then they get frustrated because they're not making the gains that they want. So then they kind of check out. This program or club is just the opposite. Mm-hmm. They are able to see it in real time. That's mm-hmm. cool. Month to month. Like they can see their growth. Like last month I wasn't doing this. Yeah. I wasn't able to make that time standard. I wasn't able to make that that accuracy standard. And now I am. Yeah. You know, and sometimes it kind of, you know, sometimes they lose it and, so, and then they get it back. Yeah. And so it's that constant struggle of maintaining that consistency. But they can see it in real time because it's happening in such close intervals. How important
0: is mindset in all this? I mean, you know, I think about the action of yeah. actually, you know, being attacked or something happening. And then obviously, you know, heart rate, anxiety, you know, breathing, all that comes into play. How do you, how do you coach that?
1: Um, well, we have what we call a defensive mindset brief, and that covers a lot of it. We go into uh, a lot of things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people that one of the hardest decisions that you're ever going to have to make is the decision to save your own life at the cost of taking somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And and actually, that was that was shared with me by um, some Secret Service guys that I worked with that work a very unique job. And he, he mentioned to me that, you know, that was one of the major watershed moments that he had was when he realized that to protect life, he will have to take life. Mm. And so I try to get that through early on because that's the biggest mental roadblock for a lot of people is realizing that they, sorry, realizing that they are going to have to use their skills to defend their lives, which could mean the outcome of which is the loss of life. Right. Yeah. Or tough. I throw it out of this way, failing to do that could mean the loss of life is yours or your family members. Mm. So it's, you know, it's not easy. You, there's no easy answer or road or solution here, but once we can get them to understand that, um, and it's a hard one because yeah. that, that, that's like, that affects people really to the core right. because in general everybody that comes in here everybody that comes in here or to our training classes is a good intended person right. they want to just live their life they want to enjoy their life they want to be with their family they want to watch their kids grow up they want to see what life has to offer them right they're not out looking they're not looking to hunt <laughs> no they're not out there looking to to be a problem but yeah. they know that problems are looking for them Right. They've come to that realization and we see it more and more with the increase in the license to carry classes, the concealed carry classes, more and more people are taking that. They're making that they're making their minds up on their own that, OK, this isn't quite as safe a place as I once thought it was yeah. or I can't take those liberties anymore that I once did.
0: How important is that, Jeff, like in the dynamics of our culture now and the way things are going to get out and get this training?
1: Well, in with. <sighs> Currently, with everything going the way it is, I feel like the best advice I give people is to, you know, don't go to high-risk areas. Mm. Um, Play stupid games, win stupid prizes, Mm. right? So you have to be smart about what you do in life. Um, I'm not saying to live in a boarded-up building and never go out, but just realize that while you might want to protest the protesters, you are putting yourself and great danger by doing that now. Mm, yeah. And I don't think it's worth it. I think there's other ways that you can address the, the, the issues there, right. Like what, what's happening on, on that side. Um, then I tell people to find a gun that you can train with well, and then carry it as regularly as you can. Hmm because the you know the the gun in your nightstand drawer the gun in your glove box the gun you know in your backpack is not going to do you much good in these deadly force encounters they happen so quickly there there's some methods to picking up on the deadly force encounters but for many people they're surprised by them it's 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 a I mean for the criminal element like we talk about the five violent crimes right yeah. there's um <clears throat> there's obviously murder then there's uh, rape, kidnapping, robbery, and assault mm-hmm. so those are the five violent crimes that uh, humans in nature and especially in our country are susceptible to and I tell people that you need to you need to recognize what those are because most of the time there's another word that gets added to those, which is called aggravated, aggravated assault, aggravated rape, aggravated robbery. And that means that there was a weapon or a perceived weapon. didn't have to be a gun. It could be a baseball bat that elevated that statute to the point that now you could suffer, you know, either death or severe permanent injury. Right. So if you don't do something, you, you leave it up to the bad guy to determine the outcome. And Mm -hmm. I don't tell I tell it's your life. You know, if you're so willing to just give your life up to that other person to make the choice, okay. That's fine. But it's on you. It's on you, right? And so if you have a family, if you have responsibilities, Mm. those are on you. Right. You can't just ignore them. Yeah. You have an obligation to your family, to your society, to your religion, to to live those obligations. Right.
0: You know, that's an interesting thing. I was thinking about that as you were talking about a weapon and like, you know, carrying and like being ready for the situation. Mm -hmm. Even I can take that with, with my, you know, my camera. It's like, if I got it in my backpack, it's not ready to go. If a, if a situation happens where I need a shot or yeah, I'm not yeah. on a project, yeah, yeah, like, oh hey, this World War II guy is having a conversation with a Vietnam veteran, and I don't have my camera ready to go. I'm probably not going to have you the gonna shot. you're going to miss that shot, right?
1: A million dollar shot, yeah, yeah. And I,
0: how much more important is it when your life is under threat?
1: Well, it obviously is. Uh, like I was saying, there's two types of there's two types of attacks. There's uh, what we call a surprise attack, and then a planned attack, and. A surprise attack is just that. You are caught off guard and your ability to actually even get to a gun is severely retarded. Mm. You just, I mean, you're just trying to fight to stay on your feet, stay alive, stay away. You don't have that time and space to actually draw the gun out. You have to create it. And then there's the plan, which is where you kind of see things unfold and you recognize some of these pre-attack cues and you start to adjust your, your activity to compensate for these and so sometimes you may actually go a different direction sometimes you may stop sometimes you may actually give verbal warnings sometimes you may actually draw your gun to a ready position Mm. you know so that the difference between a surprise and a planned is pretty obvious now even a planned so a surprise attack is still a planned attack it was just it surprised you right whereas the planned attack was something that you could actually see starting to unfold right Final
0: question, you know, what do you want to, you know, what do you want people to remember you for going forward, um, you know, and your, your, legacy and what you're doing? Cause yeah, often, we have this, you know, kind of motto with the project or, you know, our legacies are the mission. Yeah. And so, you know, I think about that often with every guy that I cover, yeah. every guy and girl, what, what is that for
1: you? Well, I would say a yeah, passionate father, passionate family, and then passionate, you know, profession. You yeah. know, that's kind of what I want people to remember me by. Um, I love my kids. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them. Sometimes they're a bunch of jackasses, <laughs> but for the most my part, my dad said the same. <laughs> for the most part, I couldn't be happier. These guys are turning into young men that uh, they surprise me and and make me proud every day. Um, my family, you know, those that are close to me. They mean the world to me. I want to, you know, I, I tell people this, like, uh, on Veterans Day, it's sometimes hard for a lot of veterans. I'm sure you feel the same way when somebody walks up to you and says, thank you for your service. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to accept that. I, I always say I always am very gracious in, in my overt nature. But, in you know, inside, sometimes it's a little hard for me to accept that. I never did it for praise. I never did it for recognition. I never did it for any of those External motives, right? right. I, I did it for a totally different reason, and so when I'm talking to my fellow veterans, I always tell them to live a life worthy of the sacrifices of our, mm. of our teammates, our brothers and sisters that didn't make it back. So that's that's why my family is important. Is I want to live a life worthy of their sacrifice of my teammates that didn't make it back. You know, I want. Me, I want to enjoy the life pleasures that they will not be able to enjoy, you know, with okay. their family. Yeah, so that's so. And I trust me, I I don't always do a good job of that, <laughs> but it's my mission to try to make that my day to day occurrence. And 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 there are, I, I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. I have an amazing woman who is so incredibly gracious and patient with me. Yeah, because uh, I, I am not an easy person to uh, be in close proximity for very extended long periods of time. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very lucky. You seem very high energy. I yeah. I I I. My, I'm uh, described that way. I'm hard <laughs> to be around for a while. <laughs> yeah, my uh, I remember on one of my, um, my one of my evals, one of my mentors put down in big red letters live wire <laughs> i'll never forget that yeah and i saw and what's funny is i didn't see the eval until after it had already gone up the chain of command <laughs> and so it comes back down and it shows me to this and i was like what uh-huh. um that's amazing and then my profession you know i'm very passionate about my profession i am my my goal here is to bring awareness to not, not the negative side but the positive side of Personal defense, yeah. you know what it gives you, what it allows you. Like, every, like a lot of times, there's a negative stigma that oh, you're paranoid. I'm like, I'm not paranoid. Um, I'm I'm a, I'm aware of evil that exists in the world, and I'm prepared to meet it should I have to. And that's and I live my life. I just go about my life as best as I can. Now, I happen to have a very unique profession here, but I do live my life. I am very adamant about that. I don't want to be hindered or force myself to miss out on things that I I that I would probably miss or, or regret.
0: Yeah, how have you pushed that passion in your life and, and how have you, you know, how do you relay that to others? You just have to
1: lead the example. Yeah. You have to lead the life that they can see and and the, the, the best mantra for leadership because that, that's what this really boils down to in my profession. My job is to be a leader in the community from my peers as well as from the students and then to take that and emulate that in my everyday life you know so you know i do i i typically will show people a lot of my failures or i'll show people a lot of my setbacks or frustrations you know i mean social media is always generally you know the the very small percentage of the positive people are always yeah. trying to portray you know, I try to put out the failures that I have. I mean, you know, a lot of times it comes in different, you know, it comes in my workouts. It comes in my training. It comes sometimes in the loss of a loved one or loss of a teammate. Right. Um, you know, so just try to set that example for others to follow and let them kind of find their own way in fulfilling it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Jeff, uh, we appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. An entertaining time. This has been awesome. I yeah. do
1: love the ability to look across the table, and 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 engage with you. You know, yeah. it's nice to do it on computers with people all over the world, but right. it's it's just it's a different energy level and a different. Setting to do it here, so I'm very grateful that we got a chance to do this. Yeah. I've been
0: making this the staple of the project. Is I think to it's do a it smart move. And I think it's hugely valuable. We Backlogged, you know, I've backlogged about fifteen. That's great so far. Yeah. So That's, before I even started, I had like ten down.
1: Damn.
0: So, well, I told Tim, I'm like, you know, and I'm coming back out. No, it's been a few years. Yeah, <laughs> we're doing. we well, it, gonna do it again.
1: I think that that really is important. Yeah. That facet of what you're doing is. You know, not, it's not bad to not do it to a certain extent, but you bring so much more to the table. I I just kept, you know, for me, I just kept hearing the
0: recordings again and again and again. And, you know, one of the things is I've, you know, for the last couple of years, I've co hosted uh, Global Recon, which is a podcast that goes out quite a bit. Nice. Um, and, you know, I've co-hosted that quite a bit and, um, and, and others, and I've really enjoyed that. I've always wanted to really get the reintegration side across. But one thing that I've noticed in a lot, in some podcasts, and this isn't to knock them because it works for them, but is the fact that after listening to it for, it takes me a while to really plug into the podcast uh, because of the fact that I've got to really like get into the way that it's being recorded mm-hmm. you don't feel that same energy mm-hmm. level as like you would feel on like you know a Joe Rogan podcast or somebody right? like that where they're actually yeah. in person yeah you know, I know it's totally different totally different you, know, totally different. you yeah. could tell that
1: yeah you could totally tell that right it's so funny I had to look down at her I, just, I swear to god sometimes I still think that she's like, like you know I look to make sure she breathed. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to break eye contact. No, here, but no, no. Yeah, I had to do that. I was that's like, "Important." Yeah. she was laying so perfectly still. I had to look down there and go, Wait, "Okay, yeah, there she is. she's brave. She's got that quiet, deadly calm. Oh yeah, trust yeah. me. As soon as I get going, she's gonna be like yeah. freaking <laughs> pegged to the wall.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the the sh- podcast. And for those of you that heard all this noise in the background, I'm already probably gonna say that at the beginning, but we're at a range. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so those we're are that's actually. That's actually
1: people enjoying our facility.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. that's awesome. And yeah. Jeff, do you have anything to plug? Like where do people go to for So all your- Um
1: The simplest response to that is just go to our website, TridentConcepts.com. All of our social media is um is linked there. It's the easiest way than trying to give people names or call signs and whatnot. Um I, I really do spend as as much time as is as, as appropriate for me on social media, posting tips, posting information. Our blog is that's one of the underrated things about what I do is I, I've been writing a blog now for probably four years, maybe oh, five. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't even
0: know that. I need to plug into yeah, that. Yeah, so
1: it's a it's got about five hundred blogs. It's all related to you know personal defense, handgun, awesome. rifles, and uh, there's uh, usually I tell students that before you send me an email asking me a question, go to the go to the blog site. It's off our website yeah. and uh, do a search. Use the search engine and try to find your answers on your own, uh, which most of the time they do.
2: Mm, awesome yeah
1: um and then you know i do try to be engaged actively engaged in social media instagram facebook twitter um you know i know that it's the best way to communicate with a lot of people even though it has uh you know a negative kind of blackish cloud
0: flying (laughs) over it what's your what's your instagram tag again what was it
1: i think it's jl underscore gonzalez
0: yeah yeah awesome yeah well, everybody who's listening, make sure you go follow him. Thank you. I appreciate You'll see the negatives in life. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And it's always
1: inspiring for some yeah. reason. It's like, ah, yeah.
0: hey, guess what? We don't all have good days all the time. I tell people that. <laughs> I'm
1: like, I don't. It, it, every video is not a PR lift. Every video is not, you know, a bullseye. Every video is not me having fun. It's sometimes, you know, the, the harsh realities of life or. Or and, and the other thing too is I do try to share some of my personal life that yeah. I'm very guarded about um, right. on, on my on my social media, particularly Instagram. Yeah. Um. So that's one way to kind of get a look inside or behind the scenes if you will i of. feel that love though man <laughs> <laughs> i do yeah. you know i i try awesome. to i try to do that i like i said i'm a dysfunctional introvert <laughs> that's my that's what i really am i like that yeah <laughs> well mr
0: gonzalez thanks for coming on again my fellow pleasure. south texan yes i yeah, grew up awesome. right down the road We appreciate you. and for those of you listening don't forget to subscribe and view the podcast if you like it leave us a five-star review and don't forget our legacy are the show This has been the Veterans Project podcast with our founder, Tim K. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.